you're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I wonder if the irredeemable shag will comment about this villain having the look of a cut-rate firestorm. And welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi everyone, my name is Sean Engel, and it's my job on the show to cover the Green Lantern comics, starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, while in turn putting a special emphasis on my favorite characters, Guy Gardner and Kyle Reed. And much like in previous episodes, Guy Gardner is almost nowhere to be seen. In fact, he barely even bears a mention in the Green Lantern Annual that we'll be covering this time as the second book. Yes, it's Green Lantern Annual number two. A part of the Bloodlines crossover. Yes, the one that decided to introduce this spate of new characters with them all getting their cerebral juices sucked out by weird sort of H.R. Geiger-esque pink and blue aliens that could transform into really hot bitch bird females. That's what we're getting as Haldren goes to try and save Carol Ferris and other people from these aliens and plus introduce the character of Nightblade, a Bloodlines character that didn't quite have the success that Hitman did in any way, shape, or form. However, there is a new character introduced in the Green Lantern comic, issue 113, of Effigy, a character who looks a lot like Firestorm in some ways, which is why I'm hoping Shag will listen to this so he could tell me how much he is not like Firestorm. Remember the guy, the douchey guy from Seattle who got taken up by aliens and probed? Well, he's back and he's got firepower. Actual firepower. In fact, in some ways, he can use his fire energy to create constructs, much like Green Lantern, which obviously makes him a perfect villain for Green Lantern which, of course, he'll be doing his villainy against in issue 113 of, you guessed it, Green Lantern, which we'll be covering after I play these promos for some wonderful podcasts that I love to listen to, as well as getting through a few more of your guys' emails. Glad to get to it, but it'll all be coming as soon as we take this podcast promo break.
Hey, a bunch of damn dirty apes. It's me, Maury Clawhammer. Don't you recognize me? Of course you don't. I've gone back to my simian roots. Maury Clawhammer is going ape. That's right. Coming soon at TwoTrueFreaks.com, it's Planet of the Apes Month. Hey, hey, look at me. I'm peeling a banana with my feet while watching all five of them monkey movies. Now I'm reading a chimpanzee comic while swinging on my swinging tire swing. Woohoo! Then it's toy time when some kid throws me a vintage Mego Dr. Zayas action figure. And I'm gonna put it where the sun don't shine in front of a whole third grade class. And nobody's gonna bat an eye. Then I'm gonna pull it out and I'm gonna fling it at him. It's a whole month of monkey madness. Coming soon at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Check it out. I'm devolving by the second. Or is it the other way around? This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men, who even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom, presents All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries, and to commemorate the centennial of the First World War, I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all-time classic war novel. Along with the look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations, and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th at incountry.podomatic.com. And we are back, and it's time to, as we always do, dive into the virtual Just One Other Guy's email bag and find out what kind of letters have been written in this week from you wonderful listeners. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and we start out this time with another letter from my wonderful listener to the Great White North, Mr. Scott Davis. He writes in with the title, Emerald Knights and the Eden Corps. The message starts out, Hi, Sean. Sorry to hear that your two teams, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, both lost in the first round of the NCAA March Madness this year. I hope you're not too broken up about it. They were playing basket game ball thing? I didn't even know about that. I'm more of a Thunder fan, so... And that probably irks Luke Giaconetti because he thinks we stole the Thunder from Seattle or whatever. They weren't doing anything with them. Anyhow, Scott continues, here are a few notes on some of the issues I read recently. Green Lantern number 103, this was a great issue about young Hal returning to the JLA. I'm not a fan of Johnson slash Williams pencils, and you make a great point that everyone looks really bored with this issue. Wonder Woman looks terrible too. In fact, the art is so distracting that it took me out of the story as I read through it. Kyle is such a crybaby in this issue. Boo-hoo, the JLA let Hal into the group. I love how Batman calls out Kyle for acting like the child at the end of issue. 
Speaking of the in the issue, did Kyle's temper tantrum really turn Jade on? Ugh, I didn't even think about that. Right after Kyle acts like a kid and throws his coffee across the room, she kisses him and they go have sex. Isn't that how it usually happens? That's pretty much par for the course for me. Is Kyle really so charming that he can really get girls to do this? Well, obviously so, because they hit that later. Presumably. By the way, you didn't sound too convinced that about it, but I did definitely think that Kyle and Jade had sex. Jade had just gotten out of bed to get a sandwich when Batman creepily came in to talk to Kyle. It was actually very nice of Batman to wait outside the window until they finished, if you know what I mean. Uh, it does kind of fit Batman's persona that, you know, he might be one of those people who likes to sit around and watch things. Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of creepy thinking about it now. Green Arrow number 136, this was an excellent issue, he says, by Chuck Dixon, about Connor and young Hal fighting the Eden Corps. I have to admit, the cover looks very flamboyant with the pink background and Connor and Hal doing some very swanky poses in the air. Eddie Fires is also a great character, and I really like how Hal is starting to lose his mind in this issue. The fact that he was transported ten years into the future and finds out that basically everyone is dead must have been a pretty must have been pretty tough, tough to take. Then Green Lantern number 104, he says this was another great, excellent issue with young Hal and Connor preventing the bombing of Mount Rainier. The cover by Pelletier is great, with Connor and Hal on the air dodging explosions. I might have to say that Pelletier is one of my favorite Green Lantern artists. I'm going to have to agree with you. As much as Daryl Banks is associated with Green Lantern for this time, I think Paul Pelletier also needs to get some recognition as well. Scott continues on. He does amazing. He does an amazing job. The face scratch by Vince on page 15 is brutal. I feel like I'm saying this a lot lately, but I'm really enjoying these Green Lantern issues, and I agree with you that this era of Green Lantern is probably one of the best. Well, I'm glad that someone agrees with me. I I can't say enough about this, and I'm glad that I've... I continue to be glad that I've decided on covering this stuff, because going back and reading this has just been a barrel of fun. He finished up saying, Sean, you went off on a small rant about how you hate eco-terrorists like the Eden Corps who think destroying human life will make the planet better. Coincidentally, have you read Dan Brown's latest novel, Inferno? No spoilers, but a very but it's a very interesting book if this topic interests you. Uh No, Dan Brown It's not that I'm turned off by his stories. I haven't read either Angels and Demons or Da Vinci Code, but it has that kind of feel of just the sort of out there art bell coincidental findings of certain things that lead to bigger conspiracies that just doesn't really resonate with me. I'm certain Dan Brown has, uh, I'm certain the books are good, but I was more impressed with the Angels and Demons movie simply because it was set in Rome and I just, since I had been there once before, well actually now twice before, it was kind of neat to see all the little settings that they were going to. But as a Actual movie, eh, nothing to write home about. Anyway, Scott finishes up saying, have a great week, Scott. Well, I hope you have a great week too, Scott. Thank you again for writing in. My next letter comes out this time from a fellow podcaster and good friend of the show, Mr. Michael Bradley. If you're not listening to Michael Bradley's show, Superman and Batman, he just started up about, oh, probably the beginning of the year, and I think he's on... He's probably into his teens issue or not issue episode wise. And it's just been a blast listening to that stuff. Michael has an incredible sense of humor, 
Very, very witty, very dry humor. And I love the coverage of the shows that he's doing. In fact, uh, you may have listened just recently. I was actually on one of his shows, and we covered a uh, very interesting comic about uh, Superman and Batman fighting with El Monstro, a female who turned into a Swamp Thing-like character that wasn't in any way, shape, or form like Swamp Thing. It was Bob Haney goodness, if you can call that goodness. Anyway, Michael writes in with the title, On a Tangent, and he says, I thought I'd give you a bit more info on the tangent events, in case you were curious. In short, what it was was a series of one-shots. As I recall, they all stood alone, but they were all in the same universe and had some very loose connections, name checks and the like, between them, that basically took the names, jumbled them up, and created a brand new universe with, a new, with new characters around these names. For example, in the reconceptualization of Superman, the quote-unquote Superman was a human, Harvey Dent, who thanks to manipulations of a shadow group called Nightwing, found himself developing mental powers and evolving thousands of years down the evolutionary scale. I can see how, from the covers, you might infer a manga-slash-anime influence, but they really don't have that. Okay, I'll give you that. The books were grounded in a real-world setting, for whatever that means in comics, but the tangent world differed from the real or fictional worlds in one key point. In the history of that universe, the Cuban Missile Crisis went much differently, escalating into a full-on nuclear war. And in the end, Florida and Cuba, Cuba, sorry, Cuba were also gone. And that event was used as a touchstone for a lot of the books slash characters. Creatively, they were far from tryout books. They actually had a lot of big names attached. The product was spearheaded by Dan Jurgens and other writers involved Ron Mars, James Robinson, J.H. Williams, Kurt Busiak, Carl Kessel, John Ostrander, Jan Drusama, Chuck Dixon, Tom Grummet, Mark Biller, Peter David, Daryl Banks, and more. Wow, I must have really misspoke. That's that's a list of the big names in the uh, 90s, so, yeah, well, that tells you how much I know about comics. Uh, he continues, in a few years since I looked at, it's, I'm sorry, he says it's been a few years since I looked at any of the books, but while none of all of the books were winners, I remember liking more of them than I didn't. The Superman and Green Lantern books, as I recall, were my favorites. But again, I haven't read many of them in many years, and my memory of some of them is almost non-existent. Regardless, I certainly, I certainly enjoyed it as a concept and in an attempt at doing something different. The more recent revival of it, a 12-issue series called Tangent, colon, Superman's Reign, was very forgettable. But I would recommend the two original waves of one-shots from the 1990s, especially if you find them on the cheap. There were actually two Green Lantern books, one in each wave. James Robinson and J.H. Williams were, on, were the team on the first. The second had a framing sequence by then, with a trio of stories by different creators. I know you're booked up for the year, I senior schedule. Yeah, I shared, you know, what's going on with me, what's going on with this show with Michael. So yeah, there's a lot of books coming up in the near future. But he says, if you ever decide to cover them on the show, let me know. I might cover the Superman and Batman issues on, well, Superman and Batman at the same time, and we could have a mini crossover. That'd be an interesting idea. I'm certain there's got to be some time where I can pencil those in so we can work out something to do a sort of crossover between those two things i i think that'd be pretty enjoyable even if you don't cover them he says if you even if you ever read any of the books i'd be interested in hearing your thoughts as always keep up the great work really really looking forward to your coverage of iron lantern i'm i'm 
glad you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed that. I I think we got some email back and forth about how how much that was enjoyable because I sure had a fun time with it. He says, I might even crack out the issue and reread it in advance to follow along. I loves me some amalgam books. Much like Tangent, not all are winners, but they all are extremely fun. I think you you nailed it on the head there. That's the one thing that I got from that amalgam book of Iron Lantern. Fun. Just fun. It was perfect. Anyway, he finishes up with all the best, Michael. Well, Michael, thank you very much. Again, guys, Michael Bradley is very well known for doing incredible work with Superman. His thrilling adventures of Superman, while now not in... Well, he's not doing them anymore. He may come back to them. Was an incredible look at the golden age of Superman. He's still doing his uh, blog, Siegel Schuster Mythmakers, I think at greatcrypton.com. Definitely go check that out to find out what Siegel and Schuster did aside from creating the Man of Steel. And definitely, definitely go check out Superman and Batman. It's just a wonderful, quick little show where Michael is covering everything dealing with the Dark Knight detective and the Man of Steel teaming up. It's a great, fun, engaging, just good to listen to show. Michael is an awesome podcaster, and you might even be hearing a little bit of Michael here in the next couple of weeks. You never know. But what I do know is that's time to close up the email bag for now. We've got a few more letters, and keep those cards and letters coming, as they say, even though I won't be accepting cards and letters because it's email, but you know what I'm talking about. But for now, let's go ahead and close that up and start into coverage of the issue, Green Lantern number 113. This one was cover dated June 1999 and released on April 14, 1999. Mike's Amazing World of Comics, always the place to go for that kind of information. The cover price was $1.99 US and $3.25 Canada, and the title this time out was Burning in Effigy, Part 1. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler Daryl Banks, inker Terry Austin, colorist Rob Schwager, letterer Willie Schubert, assistant editor Harvey Richards, and editor Kevin Dooley. Green Lantern Kyle Rayner doesn't like fire, which could be a bad thing as he's currently rescuing a young child from a burning building. Bringing up an elevator car construct, Kyle lowers himself and the child down to the ground floor as he reminisces about a fire that broke out in his mother's mobile home when he was a kid. But much like the young boy, Kyle was saved by a hero. Only this one happened to be a firefighter who brought the young boy out of the inferno. Dropping the boy off with his mother, Kyle eschews the praise, saying that he was only doing his job. Cut to a non-Starbucks hipster coffeehouse where Naked McDouchebag, now officially known as Barton Van Wick, is showing off his awesome fire powers while relating the strange tale of getting them, leaving out the bits that probably involved anal probing. His use of said powers, and of smoking a cigarette, have raised the ire of the head barista who asks him and his friends to leave. Martin disagrees and scares off the barista with a flame-based demonic image, saying that now he can do anything that he wants to. Back with Kyle, we see him doing a little painting and ruminating when snuggle buddy Jenny Lynn Hayden sneaks up behind him with the offering of some super happy fun time. Even though Kyle would like to finish up his work on the painting, which will be getting a public gallery image showing, he decides that Hot Nookie with Jenny would probably be more enjoyable than any amount of painting. Cut back to Morton and his girlfriend, who are exiting the coffee shop and walking like a couple of inconsiderate a-holes into the middle of the street. Of course, they almost get run into by a thuggish goon in a pink Cadillac who tries to pick a fight with the flannel-wearing flamer. 
This leads to Martin trading his Eddie Vedder look for a Firestorm slash Daredevil mashup, burning a caddy to ash, and discovering that he also can fly. Back with a post-coital Kyle, he's charging his ring and preparing to head out to meet with his mother in California. Jenny pushes a little kill trip on Kyle, mentioning that Donna got to meet with his mom, and Kyle says that when the time is right, he'll take Jenny to meet her too. After a quick kiss goodbye, Kyle streaks out the window and heads for his mom's house. Back atop the Space Needle, because Seattle doesn't have Big Ben or the Apple Tower to identify where it is, Martin exposits backstory about his troubled youth to his girlfriend, while he uses his flame powers to make an image of some goth nose ring wearing rocker. Stace mentions that his constructs are like quote-unquote burning effigies, and that gives Burton a great idea for his new pseudonym. Smashing a flaming fist into the roof of the needle, Effigy flies off, leaving his girlfriend Stace trapped on the roof alone, with no way of getting down. Over at Maura Raider's house, Kyle is regaling his mother with his tale of how he became the last Green Lantern, when the Expositional News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, 2009, All Rights Reserved, breaks in with an image of a flying, fiery freak blasting the Hollywood sign. Knowing that this is his kind of thing, Mara wishes Kyle well as he takes off to investigate. Hovering over the iconic sign, Effigy lights up the letter O ablaze until Green Lantern caps off his flaming hand in a ring construct shackle. The Lantern asks the flaming youth what's up with the destruction of public property, and Effigy gives him an answer in a reasoned, well-thought-out manner, in the form of a flaming dragon construct, which burns our hero out of the sky. I like that the character of Effigy is sort of a Sinestro to Kyle's Green Lantern. His powers are kind of similar in the fact that he can use the flame th- to create constructs, and he has a similar upbringing with a single-parent home. Plus, as we fi- will find out in future issues, he's more tied to the Green Lantern Corps than we might have expected. The art here is... it's better, but it's still not great. Luckily, there's not as much variance between the images as we've seen in previous issues, but Austin's inking is still making it thick and muddy in some places. But overall, I think maybe that period that we saw with Austin and Banks having just a horrible time on the book was due to them doing other things and being rushed, because it looks a lot more impressive here. It especially looks a lot more impressive on the cover, which is a really great homage cover if you didn't really notice it. It's got Effigy bursting through what essentially is the issue or the cover to issue 51. Uh, it's it's really kind of... I didn't even notice that until I looked at, you know, specifically the line work and everything. And yeah, it's it's essentially the issue of 51 with Effigy bur- burning out of it. So Effigy's look is... Like I said in the synopsis, it's kind of an amalgamation of a very daredevil red type costume with sort of scarlet spider gloves they've got the sort of ribbing on them and firestorm's flaming hair so it's an unusual look but i think it is an effective counterpart for kyle's ring-based constructs and like i said they'll be 
connections to the Green Lantern Corps and to the Guardians of the Universe as we find out more about the FG character in later books. Page one, here's an example of how the artwork is a bit better and still not quite there yet. The elaborate look of the ring construct that Kyle is using to support the frame of this building that's collapsing on himself and the kid is really detailed and really good. But the inking on the kid's face is just a little off. He still has that sort of blow-up doll look that we've seen quite frequently in the book and different characters. And overall, it is much better, but it's still got a bit ways to go, at least in my opinion. On page three, we get a great job of the dialogue and artwork just mixing together to make a really good page. Especially on this fourth panel where Kyle is looking at the mother and son the kid he's just rescued, and sort of shrugging off the praise that the mom is giving to him, saying, hey, it's just my job. What else would I be doing? And again, that's that's what I like about Mars doing the character. He's still the young, kind of cocky, you know, 20-something kid, but he's fallen into his hero role so perfectly. It's It's just a nice blend of the character. But then moving on to page four, the artwork gets a bit muddier here. And I think I think it is when it gets further away, when you're not getting close-up shots and the detail isn't there, the inking is kind of thick and muddy, and it doesn't look as good. When, when we get closer shots of the characters' faces, it seems to be all right. But on this page, we also get an image of the aliens that were experimenting on Barton as he was in the spaceship, and maybe they look a bit familiar. I guess we'll find out pretty soon. Moving on to the book, I'll jumping ahead a few pages. Page 8, Jenny... Under Daryl Banks's art, Jenny has looked a little off in some panels, and here's one of the examples of it in this. In this second panel here, Jenny's peeking over Kyle's shoulder looking at the painting that he's doing, and her head just looks very flat. Uh, the way it looks, it doesn't look like there's any form to it. Uh, it's not bad. It's not as bad as blow-up doll Jenny that we had a couple of issues back, but it's still not quite there yet. But again, the artwork is improving. I'm liking it a lot more. Again, I'm just... I don't know why uh, Daryl Banks is recognized with this era of Green Lantern, but I'm just enjoying Pelletier's work so much better at this time. There you go. However, wonky art styling or not, on page 9, nothing can really delay Kyle from getting some hot monkey love with Jenny. I mean, think about it. If you could be painting or canoodling with, though, a former superhero who looks like Jenny Lynn Hayden... What would you be doing? Chances are it wouldn't be painting. Page 11, we get our first full-page full page splash of Effigy in his costume, his new look, whatever, as he's transformed from Martin into Effigy. And it's, like I said, it's kind of an, a not really unique, but interesting outfit. The costume is a red spandex bodysuit, very much like Daredevil's. He's got sort of gauntlets on that look very Scarlet Spider, or not Scarlet Spider, but more the Iron Spider. They look like Spider-Man because they've got the sort of ribbed effect to them. His face has gone all white, kind of Joker-esque. In fact, with the grin, he does look 
very much like the Joker, but he's got the flaming firestorm hair. So it's an interesting look, and it's an interesting idea of a character, like I said, to go up against Green Lantern. So definitely better than some of the other villains that have come in in Ron Mars's run. Page 14, we get a little seeding of uh, some friction that might be coming up between Jenny and Donna. Jenny mentions that Kyle hasn't taken her to see his mother yet, while he had taken Donna to see his mother. So we're seeing, like I said, the seeds being laid for some possible friction if Donna ever were to come back into Kyle's life. Not that that would ever happen, ever, but it will. Plus, we also have a really sort of wonky panel here. The fourth one here, the circular panel, as Jenny and Kyle kiss, it looks like something got inked wrong on Kyle's forehead because it looks like Kyle has a big old scar, like a almost a lobotomy scar down the middle of his forehead. It's just kind of weird and kind of disturbing as well if it's a lobotomy scar. Yeah. Page 15, as I mentioned in the synopsis, how can you tell where we are? Well, we're in Seattle. How do you know we're in Seattle? It's the Space Needle, the most obvious, recognizable landmark in Seattle. Much like Big Ben, much like the Eiffel Tower, you have to have an image of the Space Needle if you're going to determine where you are in the United States. Seattle, folks. There you go. Plus, on the next page, page 16, we get just how big of a jerk effigy is or martin or whatever he wants to go by because he decides to leave his girlfriend on top of the space tower or on top of the space needle sorry so obviously you've got to assume that he flew her up there no one knows that they're up there she's hanging on by a ladder is she going to be trapped up there unable to get down is there a possibility that she's still up there is there a possibility that she had to jump these things are running through my mind, and it's really creepy, and it makes this effigy guy just more and more of an unlikable jerk. So, yeah, we'll have to see how his character progresses through the rest of the Green Lantern book, because I know he becomes a major thorn in Kyle Rayner's side later in the series. Page 17, as Kyle engages with his mother, Mara looks a bit more frumpy than she did the last time we saw her back in that issue where he and Donna went to Los Angeles to talk with her. She was more of a, I hate to say it, I hate to use the term, of a MILF, but now she has more of a matronly kind of look. She's a bit a bit more round, not as curvy. So, like I said, she's got a more motherly look, so I don't know whether she just let herself go or this is just a different decision to draw her this way, but all I'm saying is I kind of like the sort of MILF-like uh, Kyle's mom. But that's just me. But after that, we get the battle with Effigy and Kyle and them talking out their differences. And eventually on page 22, Effigy deciding that he is going to attack Kyle. And he does so with a really spectacularly drawn dragon construct that just breathes fire burning through Kyle's shield and knocking him to the ground. So it's this is where the artwork really shines. And it's not really ached all that much and I'm wondering if that's the thing because the dragon construct looks like it's just penciled then colored there doesn't look like there's any specific inks around it so 
maybe it is Austin that's kind of dragging the artwork down. I hate to speculate about that, but this this artwork on this page of the dragon, it looks really good. So it's leading me to believe that. But that does it for the book. I do want to, however, go and take a look at some of the ads in here because there's some ones that I'm really excited for and some ones I could really care less about. The front and side cover is for a very unique form of recording device that came around in the late 90s. As you know, or as you might know, CDs were all the rage. They sort of replaced cassettes as the way to store media. And the CDs were very good at storing digital media, but they weren't very fun to carry around if you want to listen to, mu listen to your music on the go. Sure, Sony had the Discman, but it had to sort of spend a, like five or six seconds buffering before it could play the song, and then if you move too much, it would skip inadvertently. So what Sony came up with was the mini disc, which was essentially a small compact disc encased in a plastic case, which was re-recordable. However, it only allowed you to record the same amount of musical time on it as you would on a CD, 47 minutes, or not 47, 74 minutes. So essentially you could get a full album or maybe two offspring albums on it. There you go. What we did before MP3 players is just mind-boggling. A few pages in, there's a very anime-style girl in a green sports bra and very, very high-waisted Daisy Dukes uh, saying, uh, you, you weren't... I'm sorry, if you weren't started yet, you're already 80 million years behind. It's for a game called Time Tremors, which I guess is a online game sponsored by Cherry Coke and MTV. I'd never heard of it, and I don't think anyone else has either. No idea about this game. But the next page is something that I absolutely love. It's an advertisement for Futurama. It says, Guaranteed delivery anywhere in the universe, with the asterisk pointing down to the bottom, saying, Excluding the Galaxy of Terror, the Forbidden Zone, and the Nebula of No Return, and certain areas of New Jersey. Yes, Futurama is perhaps the best thing to come out of Matt Greening in the past 10, 15 years. Far superior to The Simpsons, in my opinion. Great comedic timing incredible, incredible non-sequiturs. Bender, Leela, and Fry are some of the greatest characters to come out of the mind of Matt Groening, and this was such an underrated show. I remember it airing, it says here it was supposed to air on Tuesdays on Fox, but I think it eventually ended up airing on Sundays on Fox. However, most of the time, it, would, it was supposed to air around 6 o'clock in front of King of the Hill and then The Simpsons, but unfortunately, it always got preempted, especially here in the central time zone, because football, football games would run long. So a lot of times these episodes weren't aired or were missed out or whatever. But this is a great, great poster. It's got Leela holding her, her uh, laser pistol, her little blaster, very anachronistic looking blaster. And ironically, it's got the Planet Express ship here actually drawn as a cartoon. Most of the time on the show, it was rendered as a 3D computer model, so it's kind of interesting to see the ship uh, in a uh, 
cartoon fashion here. But Futurama is is just a show that I absolutely adore, even to this day. I've got to catch up on on the final season and re, and watch through that because I've heard that it ends in a really really satisfying way. And I mentioned earlier about you know the mini disc being able to maybe hold two offspring albums. Well, it's kind of ironic or maybe coincidental that there's an ad in here for a movie called Idle Hands, which had the offspring in a sort of well, guest spot role as a, a band that played at Devon Swana's, you know, high school prom. Idle Hands was essentially a comedy stoner horror film about a kid who, I don't know whether he had to cut his hand off or his hand got cut off, but his hand got cut off and basically, like the hand with Michael Caine, came back to life to threaten him and his friends, which also included Seth Green, I believe. It was sort of a stoner comedy that was not awful. Had a lot to play on, you know, that obviously the Evil Dead movie, but eh, probably worth a watch if it were streaming on Netflix. Not great, though, but worth a little bit of time. Then on the next page, as excited as I was for Futurama, I'm so much less so for Family Guy. As we get an image of Stewie, the sort of breakout character with a big football head, saying time out, I'll give you time out for eternity, as he carries a teddy bear in one hand and a very large rocket launcher in the other. And Family Guy was supposed to air after The Simpsons at 7.30, 8.30 p.m. Eastern on Sundays. So I know there are throngs of people out there who love Family Guy, but I am certainly not one of them. I... I find the show very repetitive. That's kind of what their humor relies on. And it just wasn't for me. I really wish Futurama would have been the breakout show. And I was glad when Adult Swim decided to snatch up both shows. And they both got a lot of traction running on uh, comedy, not Comedy Central, but on uh, Cartoon Network. But I would have wished Futurama would have been the one that one out over Family Guy. That's just me, though. Moving on, there's a very minimal ad for Airwalk Shoes with a punk rock-looking person with a cut-off leather jacket, it looks like, and spiky hair looking into a mirror and seeing his face as the Airwalk symbol. Sure, whatever. And then the page after that is a house ad for JLA Year One, before they could become a legend, they had to become a team, and it's got Martian Manhunter. I'm assuming it's the Barry Allen Flash, uh, Black Canary, Aquaman, and Hal Jordan Green Lantern. Written by, who is it, Mark Wade, Brian Augustine, and Barry Kitson. With uh, Michael Bear, Mark Probst, and John Stokes is coming on in the comic as well. Never read this one, but it's a 12-issue miniseries. Could be interesting. Then we finally get an answer to what the mysterious enigmatic IYDKYDG advertisement was that we had a few issues back. Yeah, it's for Coca-Cola. And the the slogan that the, what, anagram, not anagram, but acronym was for, is for if you don't know, you don't go. So, yeah, Coca-Cola, weird acronyms. And the page after that is symbolizing the beginning of the career of the man 
who would either save or, in some other people's opinion, destroy the DC Universe, Jeff Johns, Stars and Stripe. And I never read this. You know, the fact that it sort of spins out of the idea of Starman, I should be interested in it. The artwork is fine. Uh, the person who's playing Stars, um, Courtney Whitmore, I guess. The art in her looks a little off, especially the way her left leg looks. It looks way too curved and her boot looks kind of wonky. But it's a nice cartoony style and it's one of the uh, earliest things Jeff Johns wrote for the uh, DC Universe, so... Get on the ground floor, I guess. The back inside cover is another advertisement for WSL Roller Jam on TNN, which eventually call it, became the Spike Network. We talked about that prior to this. And the back outside cover is another very, very minimalist ad for The Gap, with the word Clickology for the Gap online store at www.gap.com. Buying your things online, it's brand new. It's in fashion now. Go Old Navy. Anywho, that does it for this issue. I'm going to go take a little break, play a couple of promos, get myself something to drink, and when I come back, I will take a look at, hopefully, a better annual than the last one, Green Lantern Annual number 2. Oh God, it's a Bloodlines Annual. It may not be better than the last issue. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil. You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have mine, you have yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time and then if you go out of that it scrambles to uh, a d- and it doesn't ad- fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, do- it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my, uh, mm-hmm. my pro- okay. It definitely billed mm-hmm. build- me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. And we're back to cover Green Lantern Annual Number 2. It's a Bloodlines annual, as I've said before, and it was cover dated in 1993 and released on June 15th of 1993. Cover price was 250 US, 325 Canada, and a pound 50 in the UK. Title was Where the Boys Are, 
The writer was Gerard Jones, penciler was Mitch Bird, inker was Dan Davis, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Steve Matson, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, editor Kevin Dooley, and Nightblade was created by Gerard Jones and Mitch Bird. At the nursing station of Coast City Memorial Hospital, a lone nurse welcomes a visitor to the ICU. Unfortunately, this visitor tosses the nurse to the floor, flips her over, and attaches a fleshy siphon to the back of her neck. Getting what it needed, the Bloodline's alien, Lysik, changes into a Mitchbird female, and enters the room of paraplegic Nick Mayick, slowly seducing him, but eventually turning back into the alien and draining his spinal fluid as well. Cut to Green Lantern Hal Jordan, who is flying around with his former paramour Aresia. The former GL asks Hal when she'll get to wear the ring again, as well as if she'll get a chance at some of those sweet, sweet Jordan almonds, if you know what I mean, and I think you do. Hal says he thinks of her only as a friend, and besides, he's into Ann Coulter, <clears throat> I mean Olivia Reynolds right now, and besides, banging 13-year-olds just isn't his thing. Aresia calls him on his track record with women, including Carol Ferris, who he just dumped off in Coast City, where all those weird murders of women are going on. Hal is shocked by the news, so he drops Aresia off at her home and heads off to Coast City to investigate. Green Lantern hits up his friends at Ferris Aircraft to get some info on the murders, and April and Clay tell him of the female bodies found dismembered and drained of all their spinal fluid. Worse than that, it seems that all of the murders were done without any weapons, as if they were done by hand. Concerned for Carol's safety, Hal heads off to the resort she was staying at, but when he gets there, he finds her gone. Back at the hospital, the trauma team rushed to Nick's bedside to respond to a code blue. With most of the staff dead, the doctor begins CPR on the boy until the nurse reveals the shocking fact that his legs have fully healed. Nick wakes up and realizes that he recovered from his accident and can walk again, allowing him to make his comeback to something we really don't know. Sometime later, Green Lantern is talking with the local homicide officer about the murders. The Dennis Franz wannabe shows the GL the remains of some victims, causing Hal to get a bit queasy. A soothing cup of coffee later, and GL and the detective are discussing the patterns of the murders. Most of them are females, but none of the husbands are suspects. As Green Lantern heads out, the detective warns him to look after anyone he loves. We then go back to Nick, who has discharged himself from the hospital and is heading home while ruminating on his life and his uncle who taught him how to throw things. This will play into the character's backstory, sadly. Arriving at the house, Nick opens the door and finds the place in shambles, and a giant streak of blood going across the wall. Running up the stairs, he finds the body of his sister, Lori, floating in the tub, the water still flowing from the showerhead as her decapitated head bobs near her legs. Cut to Linda Generic's house, where she and Carol Ferris are sharing a cup of tea and talking about their man problems. Carol ponders over her predicament with Hal as Linda goes to get more tea, but her thoughts are soon interrupted by screams from the kitchen. Carol goes to investigate and gets Linda's severed arm unceremoniously tossed at her by the Bloodlines alien from the beginning of the book. Freaking out, Carol runs to her car, but because she's a female driver, she crashes it into a light pole seconds after leaving the house. Or it could be that she just witnessed her friend being eviscerated. You, you make the call. Over at Nick's house, the coroner is taking away his family for medical examination. Angrily slamming the door, Nick does what any depressed family member would do in this situation. He dons some black tights, rips off some trim from the curtains, rigs up some throwing knives, 
ties on a bitchin' headband, and goes out to seek justice. Nick's first stop is at his neighbor's house in hopes that they might have seen someone enter his home. Unfortunately, the neighbors are a bunch of Neanderthal freaks who cut Nick's arm off with a butcher knife. Nick runs away, wondering why he's not in pain or bleeding out. Back with Hal, we see him interviewing one of the widowers who isn't too interested to talk about his murdered spouse. The man punches Hal into a garbage can and then takes off in his car. Hal gives chase, stopping the fleeing vehicle with a ring-construct brick wall. As he pulls the unconscious man from the car, a passerby comes up and whangs Hal on the head with a tire iron. Then, in a back alley, Nick stops to catch his breath from running away from the Freak family. Wondering how his baiting routine is going to be without old Lefty, Nick is shocked to see his arms start to reform all Guy Gardner warrior style. But Nick has still time to ponder this predicament as the creepy cannibals have caught up to him. Nick throws a few knives at them, taking him down with his pinpoint accuracy, but things escalate quickly with the McFightenstein, and luckily for Nick, Green Lantern shows up to help him out and mop up the double X chromosomers. Over in a sleazy motel room, Jack Generic, Linda's husband, is postcoitally nuzzling with the haughty Lissick. The transformed alien thanks the schlub for letting her have the keys to his house, but wonders just who that woman was with his wife. Jack tells her that it was Carol Ferris, a friend of Linda's, and Lissick offers to repay him for the information with a little reverse cowgirl action. <sighs> Unfortunately, this is all a ruse as Lissick transforms back to her alien guys and skewers Jack in the back of the neck, draining all his delicious, delicious neck juice. Back with GL and Nick, the two are swapping stories about their past as the police investigate the crazed attackers. Nick says that he's going to hunt down the people who killed his family, and Hal allows him to tag along. Just then, one of the CSI officers tells Green Lantern that Carol Ferris probably witnessed the murder, and Nick knows where Linda might have lived. Hal and Nick fly off for their home, and while in flight, come up with a superhero name for Nick. Nightblade. Good choice. Approaching the house, they find Jack standing at the window, but before Hal can use his ring to mind-probe him, Jack leaps from the window, attacking our heroes. Hal subdues him and finds that he was attacked by the same alien that gave Nightblake his morphy leg and arm powers. Knowing that Jack might have spilled the beans about Carol being at Ferris Aircraft, our heroes head out again. At Ferris Air, Carol sits unconscious as a sofa as Clay, Jake, and April keep watch over her, but their vigil is broken up by the arrival of Lissick in her alien form. A lot of fighting goes on, Hal and Nightblade show up and deliver some smack ground. Hal gets mind whammied by Lissick and her slutty Mitch Bird female form, and I'm skimming through these last few pages because I really don't care all that much. In the end, evil is vanquished, Hal tries to recruit Nightblade as a Green Lantern, but the kid turns it down because he's certain this whole bloodline things will mean that it will have an incredible career in the DC Universe. The End I'm not going to give very many page-by-page -page notes here. Suffice it to say, I enjoyed this annual more than the last one. Mostly because of the Mitch Bird and Dan Davis art. Yeah, some of the male characters still look kind of bland and generic the way Bird tends to draw them. But my lord, Bird draws some incredibly sexy, albeit very 90s, women. Plus he got to cut his teeth drawing some morphing effects, which would come in handy in the next book that he would work on. A little book named Guy Gardner Warrior, one of my favorites. But we'll go ahead and do a few notes over here. We'll start with the cover, and if this cover isn't 
a perfect representation of what the 1980s is, I can't really think of anything else. I mean, I guess you could point to Youngblood or something by Rob Liefeld, but this has got the same sort of idea. We've got the poses of the characters, uh, Nightblade throwing his knives and this sort of coming out at you, the entire background being one just giant orange and yellow explosion, Nightblade having the flowing bandana with the, you know, the the stream, the sort of streamer ends of it, you know, flying in the wind. It's, it all just screams the excess of the image 1990s here. And luckily it's kind of fun. It's not depressing in the way a lot of Liefeld's type stuff is. Again, this is me commenting on this. Moving into the book, we get to page two, and we get our first example of one of Mitch Bird's very, very curvaceous females. Now, Mitch Bird's artwork is kind of an acquired taste. I like his artwork for the fact that even though his female characters do have ridiculously ample curves and uh, breastuses, they're not... They're not unrealistic. They don't have waifish, unreal waists. They look in proportion. Yes, they look very curvy, very hippie, very busty, but they don't look like that that in gigantic top-heavy frame is being supported by a little stick figure torso. So, yes, Bird's uh, artwork isn't an acquired taste, but I happen to have that kind of taste. Then moving on to the book, on page 9, panel 9, I guess, as Hal's going to investigate Carol in this hotel that she's staying at, I guess, the bellhop there, who's kind of a goofy-looking character in his own right, seems to be reading a comic book that deals with Nord. Now, it may not be a comic book, it may be the newspaper, but if it is a comic, it's kind of odd that there would be a comic printed in the DC Universe that deals with actual characters in the DC universe, but maybe it's just a newspaper. You never know. Page 10, panel 6. We get the reveal of Nick's legs being healed, and I think it would have had more of an impact if he would have seen what, have ha what had happened to Nick's legs prior to this. I mean, we see him in the hospital laying in his bed, and him saying that he's, his legs were battered or broken or injured in a car accident, but we never got to see to what extent they were. Were they severed off? Were they just mangled beyond his ability to walk? It's one of those things that just diminishes the story by the fact that you don't know what actually happened prior to this, so you see him standing up on his legs and there's no resonance to the to the reveal. Page 17 in the annuals, they seem to be able to get away with a lot more violence. In the last annual, the one with Eclipso, we had Hal basically beating the living crap out of Carol. And in this one, we've got a decapitation and murder and finding the victim floating in a overflowing tub. In a regular comic, it could be pretty horrific, but here with Mitch Bird's art being not really cartoony, but just not hyper-realistic, it doesn't feel as creepy as it possibly could be. Then, moving on to page 19, 
Nightblade decides to cull his costume from various things around the house, including a picture off the wall, some curtain trim, and it looks like some leotard tights from his mother's dresser drawer. This is why the Bloodlines characters aren't known today in the DC universe. Well, aside from Hitman. Page 25, the cannibal family that Nick goes to investigate has a look that I think is sort of a prototype for the look that Dementor would have in the Guy Gardner book. You've got these sort of Neanderthal, very large, forearmed, uh, red-haired, long-flowing red-haired type people with just deformed faces that really brought me back to the idea that this is the idea, or this was the look that Mitch Bird was going for for the character of Dementor in Guy Gardner, so kind of neat. Page 32, we get Jack, Linda's husband, being seduced by Lissick in her female form, still in her weird purple bustier leather get-up thing. But the fact that she asked him to turn around and put his back to her and expect something interesting to happen kind of makes you think that he was probably thinking about getting penetrated, but maybe not in the back of the neck, if you know what I mean. Ugh. But then finally we get through all the fight stuff and there's things going on that I really could care less about. But I did find it kind of interesting. I didn't notice this on my first read-through, but second time through I noticed that Lissick essentially tore Nightblade in half horizontally from, you know, basically the midsection through on this one panel. So the gore effects weren't so over the top that it made me not like reading it. Again, Bird's art was cartoony enough that they could get away with that without having it being revolting. But that essentially does it for my notes. Annuals, like I've said, can always be hit or miss. This one was more enjoyable for me than the prior one, predominantly, again, because I love Mitch Bird's art. Again, an acquired taste, but I enjoy it. So it worked for me. Nightblade, not so much. However, we'll be covering another annual next time out on Just Run the Guys. This time, of course, it'll be annual number three, which is one of the Elseworlds annuals from 1994. This one will be dealing with, I guess, Nazi analogs of the Green Lanterns in Hal Jordan and Guy Gardner being essentially fascist characters and John Stewart being a freedom fighter. It'll be interesting, to be certain. Plus, we've got the second part of the Burning an Effigy storyline, where we find out exactly who was the person who probed Mr. Martin Van Wick and turned him into the Flaming Effigy. That sounds a bit wrong, but it's kind of what happens. Plus, hopefully, I will have a fellow podcaster that I recently did a podcast with and actually kind of mentioned in the show as a guest host. I'm looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to his thoughts on these two issues. But you'll have to wait for seven days until we get to that, and I hope you'll be back again next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Bye, everyone. Have a good weekend. 
You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsecore contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Firestarter by The Prodigy, off their album The Fat of the Land. Now, if you want to pick up this song, the best place to go to do it, of course, is Amazon.com. And, of course, the best way to get to Amazon.com is by using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Whenever you go to the homepage at 2TrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon banner up the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll be transported to Amazon where you can buy the MP3, buy the CD, or buy a video of the very unique group Prodigy doing the song. Plus, you can buy other things such as electronic devices, tablets, phones, whatever your heart could possibly desire at incredibly low rates. And whenever you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com, a small amount of your purchase price gets kicked back to the website. It won't cost you anything extra, but the amount that you spend there really, really helps us out. And makes sure that all your geeky podcast needs are being fulfilled. So, anytime that you feel like shopping at Amazon.com for music, movies, whatever, make sure you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com.